What are the signs and symptoms of anxiety in children? What are some ways that parents can help their children who worry a lot? Can our own anxieties be transferred to our children? And given the current COVID-19 pandemic, what can parents do to make sure that they minimize the anxiety in their children? In today's episode, we're talking about anxiety and worry in children. I am Cindy Huffington, and this is Curious Neuron. Welcome to Curious Neuron, a podcast about child development and education with information that is backed by science. I am your host, Cindy Huffington. I have a doctorate degree in neuroscience and postdoctoral training in education. My specialties are understanding how the brain develops and how play promotes learning. I love searching through science articles to see what I could apply with my own three kids, and I want to share this information with you. Follow Curious Neuron on Instagram to vote for the topics I'll cover and send in your questions for the experts. For more information, visit us at CuriousNeuron.com. Hi friends, welcome back. We are definitely in uncertain times right now and there's definitely a lot of stress going around. We are in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic and most of us right now are home either not working or working from home. Our children are home from school, they're home from daycare, and these are creating uncertain times. It's creating a lot of anxiety because there are many unknown factors and there's lots of worry around what's going on. So I thought it would be important to discuss anxiety right now and to discuss it uh, in relation to children, obviously, and as well to cover what happens when we are in some sort of crisis or um, pandemic like we are right now. Today, we're going to talk with a child psychologist. And before we listen to my interview with her, I just wanted to talk about anxiety in general. Anxiety disorders are the most common group of childhood psychiatric disorders, with almost one in three children having suffered from an anxiety disorder at some point during their childhood or adolescence. Most anxiety disorders begin early in development, with an average age of onset of about 12 years old. Fear is a normal and adaptive response to potential threat. Fear is very important. If we see a bear, for instance, it isn't normal for us to just look at the bear and be excited. It's normal for us to fear it and to run away. So it's a natural and important response of our brain. In children, they'll have different periods um, throughout their infancy and, and childhood that will have different types of fears or worries. For instance, between the ages of 8 and 12 months, a baby will begin to have stranger anxiety. So if they are in your arms and you pass them to their pediatrician or to somebody new, they might start crying or want to come back in your arms, and this is normal. Between the ages of 10 to 18 months, a child will experience some level of separation anxiety, which is when they feel distressed when separated from either their mother or their father. These fears are actually protective and they're important for a child to experience. For most children, these fears will vanish between the ages of two to three years. However, for some children, there is a persistence of these fears and they even progress into bigger fears or new fears. Another type of fear is social phobia, and that usually arises um, during adolescence. There are two parts of the brain that are involved in fear um, and anxiety. The first part is the amygdala. This is a part of our brain that controls emotions, including fear and anxiety. But the amygdala does not do it on its own. So there's a whole circuitry of this involved in the brain, 
And another part of our brain involved is a small part behind our forehead called the prefrontal cortex. This part of our brain is involved in thinking. And so the amygdala or the emotions part of the brain links to the frontal part of the brain and you experience an emotion and then figure out how to deal with this emotion through the front part of your brain. So that front part basically processes the information. So let's have a listen to my interview with this child psychologist. And after my interview, I'll discuss a research study that I found really interesting that focused on high-risk traits that children can have that most likely lead to anxiety. So I think it's important for us as parents to know these traits so that we could be more aware of them in our children. Now let's move on to my interview with Dr. Yi. My guest today is one of the three phenomenal women behind the Childhood Collective blog. She is a child psychologist and a mom of two. She, along with Lori, who is also a child psychologist, and Katie, a speech-language pathologist, help empower parents and offer a wealth of valuable information on both their blog and social media accounts. You can find information about ADHD, anxiety in children, how to build a stronger relationship with your kids, how to build your child's language skills, information on autism spectrum disorders, and learning disorders. Head on to their website at thechildhoodcollective.com to read their blog posts and to get some free resources. My guest today is Dr. Mallory Yi. Welcome! Thank you so much Hi. for having me. Thank you. So I'm, I am I think that this is a relevant topic given the current situation um, with coronavirus. So, you know, talking about anxiety in general in children. And also, I think anxiety is important for us to discuss because uh, they frequently begin before adulthood. And maybe that's something that we don't realize. And so as parents, I think we should be aware of symptoms. We, all, we often have children that worry about certain things. We can have a young child who's worried or afraid of the dark or gets anxious around new people. If a child worries a lot, does it mean that they have anxiety? Not necessarily. Children all worry. Adults, we all worry. Um, the point where we would maybe start considering it an anxiety disorder, perhaps, is when these worry thoughts are triggered frequently. They are very intense, out of proportion to the scary or feared situation. That's when we might start to consider it anxiety per se. Okay. And, and when it comes to childhood anxiety, are they similar to adult dis anxiety disorders? So I know that when you t we talk about anxiety and mental health, there's general anxiety, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, panic disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder, um, mm -hmm. as well as social anxiety. Would mm -hmm. those also be, can those also be diagnosed in children or are they different? Those can also be diagnosed in children, absolutely. In children, we also see something called separation anxiety disorder, commonly seen in children that are fearful separating from their caregiver, their parent. Um, but yes, those are same. Um, those are the same diagnoses that we see in childhood. And when it comes to separation anxiety, I, I think of I have an eight month old right now, and he's slowly starting to understand that when I'm not there, he's looking around and then he'll cry a little bit. Can separation anxiety start at a young age, or is it normal to have a certain level of, of separation anxiety when they're babies? Separation worries can be very developmentally typical and as actually a good sign of cognitive development. He's realizing that, um, you know, it's, it's a sign of object permanence almost that even when he can't see you, you still exist. He wants to be with you. Um, so separation worries can be very typical depending on the child's age. Um, there is a point at which we would want them to grow out of that. And again, that's when we start to get concerned about it 
maybe it being separation anxiety disorder um, when it's no longer developmentally appropriate or when that fear is um, out of proportion for the separation, um, it's frequent, it's getting in the way of doing really fun things, taking care of responsibilities, getting in the way of going to school, that's when we would start getting concerned. Around what age would that be when it becomes a concern? Is that school-aged children or if you have a three-year-old who still cries to go to daycare, would that be something to worry about? Yeah, we would okay. at even that early, we would start to worry about it again. Some, some children resist separating in the morning at daycare because their parent is their safe person and they really mm-hmm. like to be with that person. Um, but generally, most children are then able to make that transition after saying their goodbye and then have a great day at school or at daycare. Um, but there are children as young as three who we might get concerned about if they can't change it around kind of after their parent has transitioned away, they are crying after that separation, they can't stop thinking about it. Um, Mm -hmm. So we would be concerned potentially at that young of an age. Okay. And in general, what are some of the signs and symptoms that parents should look out for when it comes to anxiety in their children? So when we're looking for anxiety and whether it's becoming a problem, some things that we might want to cue into, again, it's hard for young children to put words to their feelings. So we have to tune into their behavior. We have to tune into how are they sleeping? Are they having trouble falling asleep, staying asleep? Have there been changes to eating habits, eating a lot more than they used to, um, maybe less of an appetite than they've than you know we've been accustomed to. Um, a lot of times anxiety in young children shows up in what we would consider misbehavior. So really testing the limits, tantrums, struggle managing their emotions. And that's really frustrating to see as a parent. But sometimes when we dig a little bit deeper and we really are paying attention to what all of their behavior is communicating to us, it may be anxiety at the root of that. Mm. Um, other things that we might Um, kind of cue into as signs of anxiety in young kids, withdrawal from previous activities that they found fun and engaging, avoiding certain situations um, that maybe they used to, um, you know, willingly and joyfully participate in. Um, Other signs that we might cue into, bedwetting um, for children that are previously um, night trained. So kind of a a regression in some of those developmental skills. Something that we also commonly see in young kids is somatic complaints. So complaints of physical pain, stomach aches, headaches, Mm. um, feeling, you know, like a racing heart, or maybe they talk about butterflies in their tummy. Those are some um, somatic symptoms that, you know, make you want to grab your child and run to the doctor and make sure that everything's okay. But again, once we start really paying attention to the whole collection of behaviors, dig a little bit deeper may actually be a sign of worrying or anxiety. What type of questions should we ask our children if we're seeing these symptoms in them? Should we sit down with them to have a chat or should we, you know, immediately seek help? I think first just start paying attention, cueing in a little bit more, give them space to feel those feelings. So we talk a lot about how all feelings, all emotions are allowed. And it's really important to 
create that safe space for your child so that when they are feeling these big feelings, they know that they can come to you and that you're a Mm -hmm. safe person. You're not going to criticize them for feeling a certain way. You're not going to punish them. They need to know that they can come to you with these big feelings and that you're going to be understanding and you're going to provide that listening ear for them. So Mm -hmm. one really important step in it, again, is to kind of provide this safe place for them to feel those feelings and express those emotions. All of them are allowed. Um, Start just tuning into what you observe. So rather than jumping right into questions like, are you worrying right now? Are you feeling nervous? Does your tummy hurt? Mm -hmm. Just make some general observations about what you see. Um, Like, I see that you really don't want to play with that right now. Or, you know, it seems to me that you don't really want to go to that birthday party. Just make some general observations. And then that can kind of open up that conversation to your child being able to come to you and say, yeah, like, I really don't want to have to go to that party, or I'm nervous about if I'm going to know anyone there. And Mm -hmm. just, again, providing that safe space, making some observations about what you see can kind of set the stage for your child opening up to you about what they're feeling. So it's better, I guess, to make the observations, like you said, rather than just question them. For example, saying, why are you upset? Or why are you crying? Exactly. Because, okay, yep, they might not they might not understand it. They know that they're Mm -hmm. uncomfortable, but they don't know how to tell you why or what it is they're feeling. And you can even label that emotion for them. It looks Mm -hmm. like you're worrying right now. And if you're wrong, that's okay. They'll correct Mm -hmm. you, but then you'll know, (laughs) then you'll have a better understanding of what they are feeling. But a lot of times, especially young kids, they don't have the words to explain what they're feeling. They don't have, Mm -hmm. they can't put words to this really uncomfortable experience that they're having Mm -hmm. and you mentioned the behavior as well so I'm thinking of a child who's a little younger maybe around the age of two who doesn't have the words to explain any aspect of these emotions how would a parent you said we can recognize it by tantrums and behavior Mm -hmm. um, but perhaps some parents listening to this feel that every single child has a tantrum or (laughs) is, is going through a phase of tantrums at the age of two so how do we Um, if we can't question them and speak with them, how can we get to the root of the issue? Paying attention to patterns. Are there reliable times that those tantrums, that difficult behavior is happening and kind of, you know, collect data, be a little bit of a detective. When is, Mm -hmm. when is that more likely to happen? Is it more likely to happen in the car on the way to daycare, maybe your child is struggling with some separation issues. Is it more likely to happen um, before a birthday party or before like a large social gathering? Maybe your child is experiencing some social worries. So do some detective work. Um, If your child isn't, you know, at the age yet where they can really explain to you what's going on for them, do some detective work, figure out those patterns, provide the safe space for them to feel those emotions. um, And hopefully that will help you get to the bottom of, get to the bottom of it a little bit better. But, you know, just speaking to personal experience with this as well, my three and a half year old son, he, we recently signed him up for soccer and he absolutely refuses to play. So in this process of us going to practices, he's not playing us going to the games. He's not playing. I started to get curious. 
and mm-hmm. started to wonder whether he's worrying a little bit. Um, I wasn't letting him get out of soccer. Um, we still had to go to soccer, even though he would tell me that he wasn't going to play. Um, but I can't actually, you know, force him to get on the field and kick the ball. Um, but he was telling me that his belly was hurting, um, and his body was telling him that he didn't want to play soccer. So, so I was never really able to determine, is this really anxiety that I'm looking at? Um, but my hunch is that he was a little bit worried about playing soccer. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, was it anxiety? I'm not sure. But based Mm -hmm. on the fact that, um, he was telling me his tummy was hurting, that his body was telling him he didn't want to play. My guess is that he was worrying a little bit about that. But again, mm-hmm. he's at the age where he can't really fully tell me what's going on. Um, so there might just be some cases where we have a hunch that that's what we're looking at, but we're never going to be completely sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of younger children who might have a bit of that social anxiety or that, you know, when you're with somebody new or a new environment, um, maybe some people have reflexes i'm thinking back to my old upbringing my upbringing you know if you're afraid to um, to be in a social setting you would get kind of pushed into that social setting so that you develop so that fear goes away right you <laughs> you have to to learn to to accept it um yep. it, so but i i feel that um i i'm thinking back to my kids now and if we're around somebody new i give them time to warm up so how yep. Uh, what can we do as parents if we see that our child is hesitating to, to go to soccer or to be around certain family members or when they're in new situations and they're not saying their name or they're not saying hi? Is it better to force them to learn how to act in these situations or to step back a little bit? You know, that's a great question. <laughs> and this is a hard thing as a parent because when we rescue children from their worry, it actually makes the worry stronger. So when we put them in a situation and we say, um, you know, go play soccer, but then Mm -hmm. we let them get out of maybe we, okay, we're just going to leave practice and we go home. I've actually made that anxiety stronger because what my body, what my child's body and their brain has learned is that, oh, soccer is something that's really scary and mom let me get out of it. And it's a really good thing that she let me leave soccer because otherwise something really bad could have happened. I could have made a fool of myself or I Mm could have gotten hurt. Um, So when we rescue them from their worry situations, we can actually make their worry stronger. But this is the Mm -hmm. tricky part. We don't want to put them in a situation where the worry is so big that they can't handle it. Mm -hmm. We want to be setting them up for success by, you know, putting them in situations that might push them a little bit, um, but we know they can handle it. So with the example that you gave of, you know, maybe you're going to a relative's house and um, they're a little bit slow to warm up. We don't want to put the expectation on them right away that they, you know, carry on a full conversation with their aunt or they jump right into playing with their cousins. It's great that we're using the language around like, oh, he's slow to warm up. Um, He'll join us when he's ready so that we're not putting an expectation on them that is just too much for them. And then we have to rescue them from it. So we Mm -hmm. want to set them up for an experience that gives them a reasonable, a manageable amount of worry so we don't have to go in and rescue them. What you're discussing now, does that go back to one of your posts on Instagram um, about the worry ladder? 
um, where you have you spoke about uh, exposure. Can you perhaps explain that a little bit more? So we spoke about this social situation. Can can you apply that to a different situation where you you would apply that ladder? I guess that worry ladder. Sure. So for um, the example that we give there, that's an example of separating from a caregiver. Mm -hmm. um, so for this child, let's say their biggest worry is separating from mom for a prolonged period of time. So maybe mm -hmm. let's just say for the sake of this example, getting dropped off at school and mom goes mm -hmm. to work. That is a 10 on their ladder. That means that is, you know, at the very top, the hardest thing they could possibly imagine doing. Mm -hmm. If we were to just say, you know what, you're going to school and I'm going to work and we're putting them into that situation where their worry is the biggest, we're not really setting them up for success. You know, you might get a call from the teacher one minute later saying, you have to come back. There's no way that we're <laughs> going to make it through this day. And then you're, you are in the situation where you're going back to school. And again, you're rescuing your child from that worry. And we've made mm -hmm. that worry stronger. The idea behind this ladder is that we're identifying manageable baby steps um, to help our child eventually get to that point. Absolutely. The goal is to be able to drop your child off at school and then go to work. You kind of have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but how can we get to that point of having that be a manageable level of anxiety? Um, and that's by taking baby steps. So at first, maybe it's, we just go to school and mom stays with you and we don't have to do any separation at all. And then the next is that, you know, we're in the classroom and mom is in the classroom with you. And the next step is that you're in the classroom, but mom is in the waiting room. And the next step is that you're in the classroom and mom runs a five minute errand. So you kind of get the idea. You're, you're working your way up this ladder of challenges till you get to the ultimate goal of separating. But again, it all comes back to making sure that we're setting our child up for a reasonable challenge. We don't want to be throwing them into situations where their anxiety is too much to manage and then we're going to have to rescue them. Mm -hmm. I, I love the idea of this worry ladder because I think as parents, we see it as a um, two extremes, right? So if a child doesn't want to go to school, our choice is to, like you said, remove them from the situation or force them into the situation. Mm -hmm. But I think this ladder allows us to see that there are baby steps in between these two options, um, which is important. So I guess for each situation, um, we could sit down and try to figure out those steps that would lead us to the ultimate goal, whether it's, you know, not wanting to go to soccer or not wanting to go to school or daycare. Um, I guess that's a good like homework for, for parents. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and mm -hmm. this is going to depend a lot on your child's developmental level. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my three and a half year old probably isn't old enough to wrap his mind around the concept of this worry ladder. I'm not even sure he could, you know, put a number to his level of worry. But for older children, it would be great to get the child in on the process. And absolutely, that's a huge part of therapy is, is so for older children that can um, talk about their anxiety, can put a number to their subjective experience, um, mm. their subject, you know, their subjective level of distress, Mm -hmm. um, in a certain situation, then you want to, you want to get them involved in creating this worry ladder. You want to be very transparent about the process. Um, it's right. a great way to get their buy-in and, and ultimately for the older kids, they have to be a part of it because we can't, 
we can't say what their subjective level of worry is given a hypothetical, you know, mom sitting in the lobby, you in the classroom situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we are relying a lot on parents in those early years when it comes to making this, but as our children get older, we want their say and we need their input in creating this worry ladder. Are there some children that don't show any symptoms at all, but just internalize it? There will be children who tend to internalize this, absolutely. But if your child is showing no symptoms at all, if you haven't noticed any regression, you haven't noticed any behavioral changes, they're still, you know, going about their day and meeting all of their expectations, then, you know, are they really meeting criteria for an anxiety disorder? If it's not Mm -hmm. impacting their life in any way? Probably not. Does that mean that they're not doing worrying and internalizing things? Um, not necessarily. I, I really encourage all families to talk with their kids about worry, about anxiety, and equip them with relaxation strategies um, because it's just, in my opinion, a good life skill. We all mm-hmm. have anxiety at times. We all worry at times. And being able to know what to do with that is so important. And also having those skills to use preventatively is so important. I like to think of our body as a spring and throughout the day and throughout life, we're presented with experiences that either tighten our spring or loosen our spring. So for example, um, the current pandemic is something Mm -hmm. that is tightening our spring in a lot of ways. There's a lot of unknown that tightens the spring. We're having to, you know, homeschool our children. That's tightening the spring. Mm -hmm. We are perhaps going through the loss of a job or loss of income. That's tightening the spring. There comes a point where you can't tighten the spring anymore. You've put too many stressors on your body. And what happens to a spring that is at its tightest? It's going to explode at some point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have to, throughout our day, be thinking about how can we loosen our spring? And those are things like relaxation strategies, coping skills, um, getting out of the house, getting some sunshine, talking to friends, you know, whatever it is, we're tightening our springs so much throughout the day. We want to make sure that we're also loosening our springs. So we have to teach our children, how do we do that? So modeling, right? Modeling how we cope with anxiety ourselves to help our children learn to cope with their own anxieties. That's so, that's so yeah. important. Absolutely. So a difficult part of worrying or anxiety for our children is that at times it can feel isolating or if it can feel that they're the only ones going through this. Mm-hmm. A huge part of helping our children manage their own anxiety is managing our own anxiety. And one of the best ways we can do that is modeling for our children our own coping, um, showing our children that we worry too, but mm-hmm. we know how to manage it well. Mm-hmm. So modeling our own emotions, letting our children see our own emotions, and then how we cope with those effectively is one of the best teaching tools that we have. What if a parent is struggling themselves with anxiety and either has or may not have yet um, an anxiety disorder? How can they um, model this for their children if they're struggling as well? 
that's, that's a great question. And I think it's probably number one on the priority list. If you have a child that's prone to worry or has an anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, um, you know, the safety video on the airplane, secure your own mask before se- helping, you know, secure the masks of others. Yes, yes. You really, you have to manage your own anxiety before you're able to help someone else manage theirs. And so mm-hmm. if that's something that a parent is struggling with, I urge them to at first really put the investment in managing their own anxiety so they can model that well for their children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is there um, a genetic aspect to anxiety or if uh, a child doesn't have any diagnosis just by being in this sort of environment where there's more um, uh, there are more signs of anxiety from their parents can they develop it because of this um, both yes I'd say there there is a mm-hmm. genetic component to anxiety um, but also if that is what the child is seeing day in day out Um, that can increase the likelihood that they too are going to experience anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I guess going back to the current situation with the coronavirus and this pandemic that we're all unsure of, this is new for all adults, for everybody on this planet. How do we, with so many different, with so many uncertainties um, and anxieties that we're having, maybe we were not even an anxious person. Now all of a sudden we're, worried about germs you know we're worried about um seeing other people we're worrying about the possible financial outcome of this um what advice do you have i guess for parents right now um you know to try not to show too much i guess to their children but to be um not to hide stuff either right i guess depending on the child's age but how do we go about all this yep and, and again, it comes back to making sure that you're aware of your own worries, managing mm-hmm. your own anxiety, limiting your news consumption, certainly yes. limiting your news consumption in front of your children. Yes. Um, but yes. they are, they're tuning in to us and the way that we handle this more than we know. Um, just again, as a personal example, I had read a news article and then I went upstairs to play with my son And I think I'm acting completely normal. And he looks at me and he goes, mama, why are you being weird? (laughs) (laughs) And it took him telling me that I was acting differently for me to realize like, wow, that, that recent news article that I read is impacting me. Mm -hmm. And so they're tuning into us a lot more than we know. Mm -hmm. And they're listening a lot more than we know. If we have that news running in the background, and we think they're tuning it out because what kid likes to watch the news? <laughs> mm-hmm. They're paying they're paying attention. So yeah. limiting our news consumption, limiting their news consumption, managing our own worries um, is so important, making sure that we're taking care of ourselves. Um, like you said, we we do need to talk about this with them. They're mm-hmm. picking up on the fact that something is different. Um, so in a developmentally appropriate way, we need to explain to them what's going on um, because they're going to fill in the blanks on their own unless we do. Mm -hmm. A great way to broach this conversation with children is to start by just asking them what they think they know to kind of gauge their understanding about Mm -hmm. what is going on. And that can also kind of help you get 
a read on how worried they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So a great way is just to start it off by saying, you know, what do you think is going on or what have you heard? Um, And that gives you an idea of where are they developmentally? Where are they in their understanding of what's going on? And then in a developmentally appropriate way, you can help them fill in the gaps. And when it comes to this really less is more, Um, we want to keep it factual, um, but we also want to keep it concise and clear. We don't want to offer too much information so as to alarm them, but we want to give them enough information so that they can kind of move forward and feel like Mm -hmm. they have an understanding of why all these changes are happening and why mom and dad might be acting differently. Yeah, even in my own home, in terms of acting differently, now when we come back home with groceries, when we come back, we've been told to not touch certain things for 24 hours or wash them before and right. bring them to your home. And my two and my four-year-old yeah. are questioning this new behavior. And they're questioning why mm-hmm. all of a sudden can't we help you put the groceries away? Yeah. And it's hard because we also have the anxiety of please don't touch it. I don't want you to get sick. And then we're trying not to at the same time worry them, but we are right. worried, right? So right. I think those changes are really hard to kind of wrap our head around because they're there we can't hide those parts right but then how do we not allow our kids to be anxious about it if we kind of are anxious too yep yeah yep. and I'd say that's that's just something that all of us parents are are navigating right now mm-hmm. kind of finding that finding that middle ground where we're giving them enough information but not too much that it's going to worry them I talk mm-hmm. about some things are adult worries Um, so in this case, this is an adult worry and, you know, I'm doing as an adult, the best I can to keep our family safe. Mm -hmm. Um, my job is to keep you safe. And this is one of the things that we're doing to keep, to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's kind of uncharted waters for a lot of us parents that have never gone through something like this before, Mm -hmm. never experienced a natural disaster. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to find that balance for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of natural disasters, um, what could be the consequences of this in terms of anxiety in children? So I'm thinking of you know general anxiety, but also panic disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. Can a situation like this current pandemic cause this in children? It can, and it depends on so many variables um, to kind of predict how a child might react, but it's their level of exposure, their developmental level and their understanding of the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Is their family experiencing some form of hardship as a result of this? Again, the loss of income or a job. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps a child is used to switching between homes of a parent. Um, They're no longer doing that. Perhaps there's just a lot of variables that could play into how a child um, experiences this crisis and whether it is going to result in some kind of prolonged worry or perhaps an anxiety disorder like post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of research that has looked into children's responses to things like natural disasters. And really one of the best protective factors is having a caring and responsive caregiver during the crisis. Mm-hmm. So the best thing that we can do for our children is just be there for them and listen to them and remind them that they're safe. 
and that you're doing the best you can to keep them safe. Um, so that's the good news is that we can, we can play a role in helping our child weather this storm as well as possible. But absolutely, there will be some children who, when this crisis has settled, are likely to be experiencing prolonged, a prolonged worry response or anxiety, mm -hmm. um, given the nature of their situation. I wonder if by just just by speaking to our kids and trying to calm them and, and trying to, like you said, be responsive and, and, and nurture them in that sense, I wonder if that could help our own anxieties too just by replacing or, you know, refocusing our attention on them. Obviously, it doesn't make everything go away, but maybe that can help us as well. Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the best ways that we can help our children manage their worry during this time is just to keep them busy. Mm -hmm. And and that's, that's something that we can do for ourselves too. Not saying that mm -hmm. we should just ignore the emotions and stuff them deep no. down we're going to have to work through those at some point but mm -hmm. the more that we're keeping our children busy and the more that we're kind of diving into them and supporting them that can certainly help us as well mm -hmm. and so now let's say the pandemic is over and now we have to deal with whatever the outcome of all this will be um at what point whether it's this pandemic or without it at what point do we really put thought into seeking help for a child? Yeah, I would say that if during this crisis, your child's worry seems much more than you can manage, um, mm -hmm. if it is persistent, it's happening frequently, it's very intrusive, it's getting in the way of daily living activities, um, I would seek help as soon as you can. I realize that that is difficult to do given our mm -hmm. current situation, but there are many therapists, many psychologists that have completely switched their practice over to telehealth mm -hmm. and are perhaps still um, accepting new patients. So I wouldn't rule that out as a possibility while all of this is happening. Um, if the worry, if the anxiety seems manageable for now, then keep doing what you're doing, keeping that supportive and responsive caregiver if about one to two months after all of this has blown over and we're getting back to our normal lives, mm -hmm. if that worry is still persisting one to two months later, that's when I would consider talking to someone, seeking out outside help. Generally, okay. um, you know, four to six weeks um, is what we're looking for. Um, if we're going to, you know, make a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, but the child doesn't necessarily even need a formal diagnosis to just get a little bit of help from a therapist, from a psychologist. Um, what type of treatment would um, um, a child receive for anxiety? I would say first line of treatment, especially for younger children, is likely to be cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Mm -hmm. um, that is basically helping the child understand their feelings and how it's connected to their thoughts, what they're thinking and how it's connected to the way they're feeling and what they're doing. And it's basically empowering the child to kind of take control of those worry thoughts, um, talk back to the worry, um, put into place more adaptive and positive coping thoughts. And then also a piece of it can be working our way 
up that worry ladder, like we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. So kind of facing the fear while also equipping our child with relaxation strategies, um, perhaps mindfulness. Um, so are I would there, say- um, Are there guides for that somewhere online or some books that you would recommend for relaxation strategies and mindfulness? Sure. So we actually have a free resource on our website um, It's called mm-hmm. Relaxation for Kids. It's a pretty thorough document that talks you through three different types of relaxation strategies, um, diaphragmatic breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, and guided imagery. We put that into more um, kid-friendly terms, um, mm-hmm. and it gives you several different options in each of those three relaxation strategy categories. So that um, is a resource that I would urge parents to turn to if they're looking mm-hmm. to um, help build their child's relaxation skills at home. There mm-hmm. really are a lot of great resources out there on the internet. You can find um, guided imagery or muscle relaxation scripts that you can just mm-hmm. play okay. for your child and someone has a calming voice and they're talking them through relaxing all the muscles in their body or they're talking them through guided imagery. Um, so there are a lot of resources out there on the internet that families can search for um, in equipping their child with those relaxation strategies. Okay. I, I said at the beginning, I think in my intro that your website had like lots of resources and that just confirms that you guys really have everything that we need as parents to, to learn more and to help our kids. And you really have an amazing blog. Um, and the three of you just provide such important information thank you so much um, so thank you for that yeah <laughs> thank you um now I'm, I'm thinking also uh in terms of perhaps wondering maybe a parent might be wondering if these worry symptoms or this maybe anxiety if if it's more of a temperament in their child right is it i think back to research in terms of trait versus state right so is it something can worrying just be part of a, a child um or is it always something that we should look into I would say that there are definitely some temperaments that are more mm-hmm. prone to worries, um, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about it. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean okay. that they have to live in a perpetual state of worry. That or that just, it'll leave naturally. Exactly. Right that, that just okay, might mean it. that we need to more more than other children. We need to work with these children on again, kind of going back to that spring analogy they're going to need more assistance in loosening that spring. We're going mm-hmm. to have to teach them relaxation strategies. We're going to have to remind them to use them. Um, we're going to have to use those preventatively. Um, so, so again, they might be more prone to worrying, but that doesn't mean that that's just their perpetual state, that we don't mm-hmm. do anything about it. They're just going to take a little bit more work and a little bit more effort Um when it comes to helping them loosen that spring. Mm-hmm. And are there any links to attachment, uh, building an, a bond or an attachment with our baby and their possible, uh, any links to anxiety when they're older? Um, yeah. I'm just curious. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm just thinking a lot about the conversations that I have with some parents in terms of brain development and attachment and you know, when we see that our tra- our baby is perhaps going through that phase of um, 
separation anxiety mm-hmm. again going back going back to our conversation of whether or not you you know let them cry um, so that they become more independent are the mm-hmm. certain terms that I've heard for little babies but mm-hmm. can that maybe prime the brain or create changes in the brain um, that will lead to anxiety later on or more worry it is possible mm-hmm. and again especially in early childhood um as you know, the brain is developing so rapidly. Mm-hmm. And if our babies, if our toddlers, if our preschoolers are experiencing prolonged and sustained stressors, that's wiring the brain differently than those children that are not experiencing those types of stressors. Um, it's priming the brain to have a more fear response. It's priming the mm-hmm. brain to... Um, perceive things as life-threatening whereas you know a child who isn't exposed to those type of early childhood experiences might not be primed Mm -hmm. um so absolutely those those early experiences are wiring the brain differently um Mm -hmm. you know what exactly those experiences are is probably different for every child um but and i think that applies for any aspect of anxiety whether it's a child or an adult right so somebody can have more of a resilient um, or be more resilient in a way that a certain event or a traumatic event or a crisis could not impact them, whereas somebody else could be impacted, right? Um, Absolutely. From what I understand, okay. So it's it's not, it, it doesn't mean that every child who has a certain experience as a, a baby will develop anxiety, but there are higher chances from what I understand. Yeah. Okay, okay. And I guess it goes back again to what you were saying at the beginning. As a parent, you want to offer your child that sense of security, whether they're a baby or a toddler or in school, giving them that sense of security from what I understand with what you were saying will always offer them that safe space to come and speak to you if they're older or yep. that ability to come and see you when they're younger and express their emotions. Yes. Yeah, okay. I guess and- maybe that summarizes <laughs> also <laughs> what's important when it comes to our children and anxiety. Um, are there... Is there other advice that you'd like to share with parents or other information that you think would be important for us to know given the the current um, pandemic? I would say just expect your child to have big feelings during this time. Um, Mm. Just expect that you're going to see more big emotions from your child and that's not them uh, trying to be naughty. That's not them trying to get back at you. It's Mm -hmm. just them kind of processing through and adapting to our new normal for now. Um, So when we kind of approach our child's behavior from the mindset of this is to be expected, this is Mm -hmm. developmentally appropriate given the context, it's a little bit easier as a parent to manage that versus the mindset of they're just trying to get back at me. They want to give me a hard time. That's going to change how you react to your child versus if we're approaching it from this is developmentally appropriate given the situation, Mm -hmm. we're going to respond to them a little bit more sensitively and understanding. Mm -hmm. And when you say the new normal, right? So like you, it's, this is, we, we are experiencing this now. We all have a new normal. Should we as parents try to mimic their school schedules or their daycare schedules as much as we can or should we create this new normal and say well this will be 
your new schedule here or try to give them a bit more freedom in terms of their day. How should we go about that aspect, I guess, of our new normal? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And this is going to vary family to family. Some families thrive on a very predictable routine where every hour of their day has been designated for a certain activity. Whereas <laughs> some families, some families didn't have that kind of structure in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so to try to implement something like that now would be even more disruptive to the child <laughs> um, on top of all the changes that are happening. So this is going to really vary family to family, but my best advice would just be, be as predictable and as consistent as possible. The most that you can mimic the old schedule to now might help lessen some of, um, you know, some of the time that it's going to take them to adapt to this. Um, But just be consistent and predictable with the way that your family manages schedules and things the best possible. My family Mm -hmm. is not one to be super, um, super routine and rigid. Um, Mm -hmm. We're kind of go with the flow. Um, (laughs) But we have, there are some parts of our day that are very predictable, you know, Mm -hmm. around meals, um, the bedtime routine, the morning Mm -hmm. routine, but what comes in between those is a little bit more flexible. And my family seems to do okay with that level of routine. So I guess what parents should do is really try to maintain as much consistency as possible, um, not to develop any new anxieties in terms of a new schedule or a new way of doing things. Um, and that's the best that we can offer right now, <laughs> given all the uncertainties. Yep. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mallory, for taking the time to speak with me. I really urge all the parents to um, take some time to go to your website at the Childhood Collective to check out your Instagram account. And I know that last month, I don't know if it was the entire month, but you had lots of posts on anxiety and you have a blog um, post, at least one that I know of that talks about anxiety. So if parents want more help, they can head to your Instagram account or your website. Is there anything else uh, in terms of your information from the Childhood Collective? Absolutely. Um, I think you've, I think you've covered most of it. I would urge families to um, subscribe to our free resources um, so you can get uh, weekly email updates from us. Let, we'll let you know when we've posted a new blog post, let you know of any mm-hmm. other changes. Um, I would say that's the best way to stay in touch with us and uh, reach our content. Thank you for taking the time and congratulations for this really resourceful um, website for for parents and thank you for offering us all this information thank you Cindy. <laughs> thank you take care take care so as i mentioned before i really wanted to take some time to discuss what some of the signs and symptoms are in terms of risk for anxiety in children i found an interesting study by uh, dr jacqueline alexandra claus And this is a study uh, published in 2016. So these researchers mentioned that an important risk factor for anxiety disorders is inhibited temperament, so the tendency to be shy and to avoid new situations. In adults, this inhibition causes the amygdala to be hyperactive in a sense. But it remains unclear if this same hyperactivity of the amygdala, so remembering that the amygdala is the emotion part of the brain, especially for negative emotions such as fear and anxiety, And they questioned whether or not this amygdala could be hyperactive even before the onset of clinical anxiety symptoms. They studied 37 children who were between the ages of 8 and 10 years old. They had them go on an MRI scanner and they had them perform some tests for temperament and psychiatric symptoms. 
here's the interesting part of this study. So keeping in mind that a risk factor for anxiety is somebody who has an inhibited temperament, or they call it also behavioral inhibition, is characterized by shy and cautious responses to new situations and stimuli. Research has shown that children who are more inhibited uh, tend to have higher risks for developing anxiety disorders as well as depression. Here's what's interesting. Children who were inhibited tended to use their prefrontal cortex differently than children who were not inhibited. And this was during a task where they anticipated a, um, a threat. Um, so they were doing this inside the MRI scan. Children who were not inhibited were able to activate their prefrontal cortex during this fear anticipation task. In addition, children who were inhibited, so the high-risk group of children, um, were also unable to effectively prepare for a threat um, that they were anticipating and showed a delayed response when activating their prefrontal cortex. So it's as if there's this miscommunication in their brain. And the way that the researchers uh, phrase it is that this evidence shows that there's sort of a, a neural signature for anxiety risk in children. And by neural uh, signature, they mean almost uh, a specific way that your brain functions when you're high risk for anxiety as a child. So the results of this study show us that children at high risk for anxiety show significantly different patterns of brain activity in their frontal cortex before the onset of an actual anxiety disorder. Now, this is a cross-sectional study, meaning that the data is taken at one time. What they need to do at this point is conduct a longitudinal study. So to see if the children who respond differently to these um, threatening stimuli, if they're able to change the way their brain responds to this, and perhaps stop the onset of anxiety. Um, so there's still a lot of research to do in this field, but this was really an interesting study. Dr. Yi really highlighted a lot of important points when it comes to anxiety in children. And the, the first point being that we need to be vigilant when it comes to their behavior or changes in their behavior, um, because symptoms of anxiety are not like when you have a scrape on your skin, right? We can't see it. So we have to look at behavior and understand that this is the brain's way of exhibiting um, a distress or needing help for something, uh, right? So in this case, being worried or having symptoms of anxiety. I will put some more information and some links for you on my website. If you have any questions, you can follow the Childhood Collective uh, on Instagram or visit their website. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram for live events, to vote for topics I'll cover in the next episodes, and to learn more about child development and learning. Until next time, stay curious! Stay curious!